Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son to to be the one that would really expound and exegete the word of God to us. And and Lord, we want to understand, but we also want to live according to what you've taught us. And and as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing more obvious than we need your grace to do that. And uh, so granted, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Return, if you would, to verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, uh, it's, this whole section is actually one of those sections that's easier just to just read over it. But as soon as you slow down and you start to digest um, all that Jesus is saying, it becomes a little complicated. And if you've read uh, more than one commentator, uh, if you've heard more than one sermon on this particular section, you know that there's disagreement, okay? As I told first service, I have tons of commentaries strewn about my floor right now, uh, just trying to see if there's any agreement among them. And uh, as you start to read a few guys in the same camp, you, you realize, oh, there's some agreement here, and then they part ways. And so it's been quite entertaining to look at all of the, the differing opinions about it. And the reason that it's challenging is because when you take verse 17 and you uh, bring it into verse 19, uh, you start to wrestle, and uh, it's a good wrestling match. We're going to have to do it this morning, um, but uh, yeah. Those of one particular persuasion, they use the text to prove that the law is still binding and that Christians must keep the law of Moses. Uh, the thing is, is among their ranks, uh, they cannot agree uh, on which parts of the law are still binding and which parts are not None of them, though, are willing to say that Christians have to keep everything in the law of Moses, which at first glance the passage seems to indicate. Um, When it comes to those parts of the law that we must keep, they just struggle with one another, uh, which is kind of fun for me to watch. Others say, no, Jesus is saying that the law has been fulfilled and set aside and replaced by the new covenant, and therefore Christians are not subject to any of the law, at least not to the law as a covenant. Okay? There are men uh, on both sides of the aisle uh, in this, of this particular, concerning this particular text. Um, I respect and love all of them, and uh, like them, I disagree with many of them. So um, I'll try to give some of the other views as I go. Um, as you guys know, I have a view, and I'm going to share it, and I think I'm right. Nobody, has, nobody possesses all these views of their own and thinks they're wrong right? So we all think we're right, right? Okay, so let's just be humble about it. (laughs) All right, what we have to be careful to do, uh, rather careful not to do, is to be so committed to a particular theology that we end up forcing the text to say what we want it to say, because we would all like Jesus to say 
things the way we want him to say them. Uh, But that's not okay. He is not our puppet. He is the Lord. And we're to receive his word, to understand what he meant by what he said, and then follow suit. Amen? Yeah. So I'm not going to play with Christ's words. I'm going to give you uh, the best that I can give you with the the little mind that I have. Um, One of the the things that makes this so challenging is that the the statement itself, uh, there's no commentary on it from the apostles. Now, when we go through the Gospels, uh, we, and then the epistles, the letters of the apostles, we learn that most often they're commenting, they're clarifying all that was said in the Gospels. Well, this particular statement uh, isn't specifically addressed and explained to us. And it would be nice if they had done that. James, uh, many scholars consider James a commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But James left that out. He doesn't talk about this. And uh, so shame on him. He could have uh, cleared, cleared all the, the mess up for us. Paul makes one statement in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that is fairly similar, um, but it's not completely helpful. So we can't use that by itself. Um, plenty, though, has been written about the law in the uh, letters of the apostles regarding the Christian's relationship to it. And those passages make it clear that the law has no jurisdiction over the believer, but no explanation is given in the epistles for what Jesus meant here. Uh, we can be sure that the two aren't contradictory, okay? because Jesus inspired the writing of the apostles. So for me, when I come to a place uh, where I don't know, I go to the places where I do know. And that's the way that we harmonize the scriptures together. And so that's what I'll end up doing is uh, in the context of our relationship to the law, what do the apostles say? And then we'll harmonize those together as we go. Sound fair enough? All right, well then let's exposit the passage. Jesus begins by saying, do not think that I came. Do not think. Don't have this particular thing in your mind. The implication is that Jesus has been misunderstood and the misunderstanding needs to be cleared up. A correction needs to be made because... People were thinking that Jesus had some intentions that he did not have regarding the law and the prophets. Okay? Un- misunderstandings. When we go through the Gospels, we know that people didn't understand Jesus on a lot of issues. And it wasn't because Jesus typically spoke in mysteries or that he's difficult to understand. It's just that when you adopt a particular paradigm where your mind becomes so concrete in the way it thinks about something like theology Uh, godly living and things like that. This is the way that we think. This is the way that we do things. And then when somebody comes along with a different perspective on it, we just just can't wrap our minds around it. And that's what's happening with uh, the Jews, uh, especially the Pharisees, and uh, all kinds of stuff, serious questions, objections. Jesus was challenging, not just differing with them. He was challenging what people understood about the law of Moses. And uh, so they just thought that he was perhaps dismissing it all together. Um, As we go through the Gospels, we know that his views on piety were very different than the Pharisees, even John the Baptist. John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus when John was in prison and said, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? And then there was this this issue of of, uh, fasting and, and, you know, the, the Pharisees fast and the disciples of John fast and, and, uh, but Jesus, you don't fast. We just see you eating. And uh, so he had different, a, a different idea of, of piety. 
He challenged the application of sabbatical regulations. And that's one of the, the biggest things that got him killed, that enraged the Jews the most, was his view of the Sabbath. Okay? He spoke of cleansing all foods. And then in reaching out to Samaritans and Gentiles, uh, he was essentially saying that through faith, all people, all bloodlines could be clean. And uh, he went against the grain in so many issues, culturally, religiously. And so they thought that Jesus perhaps had just come to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, Paul was accused of something similar because Paul differed with the Jewish perspective about morality that they said Paul was lawless. He's lawless. And not just that he has no law to undergird um, his morality, his beliefs, but lawless in the sense that he's just preaching immorality, that people can, uh, because he was a preacher of grace, that people could do whatever they wanted. As long as they believed, then they would be saved, but they continue to live like the devil and everything would be okay. And so uh, Jesus was being accused of being lawless. Paul was accused that way. But it wasn't that they had no moral code. Jesus' moral code and Paul's was identical, but it was far above what the Jews had thought about the law of God. But because it differed, they just thought, well, it's wrong. It's not okay. And uh, things have to be cleared up. So Jesus does that here. First, he tells the audience, I did not come to destroy. I didn't come, not, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets, of course, refer to the body of Old Testament writings from Genesis to Malachi. Nothing more, nothing less. In the New Testament, uh, we're going to see uh, other ways of, of um, talking about the, the Old Testament literature. Uh, sometimes the entire Old Testament is called just the law. I think Jesus will actually do that here in just a moment. Other times it's called the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. Uh, sometimes the law is just referred to as Moses. They'll say Moses. And what they mean is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, context will always determine what they mean by what they say most of the time. <laughs> yep. Sometimes, and you have to watch out for this, the law will be divided into multiple other categories by various Bible teachers today to explain their interpretation of what Paul meant in Romans, Galatians, and the book of Hebrews when it concerns the law. They say that when Paul says that the believer is not under the law, he means that they're not under the ceremonial law, not the moral law, which means the believer is still under the law, just not ceremonially. Now that sounds really nice, but Paul never speaks in those terms, not in those categories. When Paul says the law, he means the whole law and everything contained in it. Okay, the law is one law. Uh, you can't get away from that in the book of James. James says it's all one. Uh, so it can't be divided into different categories so that we can pick and choose from whichever one we want. No author of scripture did that. Only modern commentators do. It's not for us to say what Paul meant. It's not for us to say what Jesus meant. So Jesus here is saying, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. I'm here certainly to challenge the way some of you have interpreted it. Uh, but I'm not here to do away with it, not to abolish it. I came to fulfill it, is what he says. Now, that's great. It seems to explain what Jesus, uh, his intentions are. But we run into a problem here when it comes to uh, the word fulfill. What does he mean by the word? Okay. Now, whatever he does mean, it has to mean the same thing for the law. And it has to mean the same thing for the prophets. What he means by fulfilling the law must mean the same thing as fulfilling the prophets. And the result of fulfilling the law has to be the same as the result of fulfilling the prophets. So the word fulfill 
can mean a couple different things. But always in the scriptures, the best way to know what a word means is to look at how the author of that book used it. Now, if you look at Luke versus Matthew and the way they use the same word, because they're different people, they use it differently quite often. And so we want to appeal, we want to consult the author, the person that uses it. So in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses the word 17 times. 17 times. Okay. There are two times where he uses the word to describe you know, filling something up to the brim. Filling something up to the brim, like filling a net with fish, one of the parables that Jesus gave. On the other occasion, the word is used figuratively in regard to uh, measuring someone's guilt, as if guilt can be poured into a container and filled to the brim and measured Okay, so filling something up. But every other time he uses the word, it means to complete something, to accomplish something. And 14 of those, he used the word to describe Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy. And every time he means that Jesus accomplished what the prophecies predicted. And here in Matthew 5, 17, the word is used in regard to prophecy, to prophecy. So if Matthew, and actually every time, the authors of Scripture use this word in relation to prophecy. It always means that. So if we change the definition of the word to suit our needs here, it seems a little suspicious, doesn't it? So we want to be in keeping with the rest of Scripture, especially the way with Matthew uses the word fulfill. If we apply that definition here, we'll have something different than others. Some believe the word fulfill, that Jesus means that he's come to fully expound the law, and give its fuller meaning. Okay? Jesus is going to do that in reference to the law and partially in regard to the prophets, but that's not actually the proper use of the word here. Okay? There actually are much better Greek words that we can use to talk about uh, expanding, uh, expositing on something, to exegete. Exegeo is one of them. Some believe that by using the word fulfill, Jesus means to say that the law and the prophets point to him, that they point to him. Well, that statement is true. The law and the prophets definitely point to Jesus. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 say that. But here in the text, Jesus isn't talking about what the law and the prophets do. He's talking about what he's doing in regard to the law and the prophets. Okay. So the best way to understand Jesus' use of the word fulfill is to say that he's come to complete or accomplish all that the law demands and all that the prophets predicted. Sound fair enough? I came to accomplish all that the law, all of its moral demands, all of its legal demands, even its civil demands, sabbatical, ceremonial, all of it. I came to satisfy all of those demands. And then I came to fulfill or complete all that was predicted by the prophets. And I think that that actually simplifies uh, the text. I think it's just the obvious sense there. So just in review of some of this, in Jesus' life and his death, he fulfilled the demands of the law. It's important to note that if he's going to be a worthy sacrifice, he has to fulfill the demands of the moral law perfectly in word, thought, deed, and motive. And as the book of Hebrews says, that he was tempted in all ways that we were, but he did not sin. He went to the cross sinless. He fulfilled the, the Sabbath by giving us a true spiritual rest, Hebrews 4. He cleansed all foods. We'll get to that in the text, not today. As we said, he cleansed all people, Jews and Gentiles, by faith. And in his death, he suffered the, the righteous demands against sin. The, the law doesn't just prescribe obedience, perfect obedience. It also prescribes sacrifice where there is disobedience. Well, 
we broke the law. Christ obeyed the law, but then the demands of the law against sin had to be satisfied. So he became the perfect sacrifice to die for the sins of the world. He fulfilled it. And many, many more things. Concerning the fulfillment of the prophets, you know, there are over 300 prophecies regarding just his first coming. 300. So let's get started with the first one. I'll name 11, okay? <laughs> it was prophesied about his virgin conception and birth, his place of birth, his upbringing in Galilee, his ministry, his teaching, miracles, persecutions, his suffering, his, what we call his passion in the Latin, and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then the proclamation and the, pro- uh, the propagation of the gospel to all ethnic groups, all prophesied and hundreds of things in between. Of course, there's more to fulfill, especially in the prophets, uh, his return, his earthly uh, reign, his kingdom, the final judgment, the defeat of Satan, the creation of the new heaven and new earth. We could use a new one by this time, can we? We need better government first. <laughs> and then, of course, ushering in the eternal state. So many things. All that is written in the law and the prophets will eventually be fulfilled by Christ. It'll all be buttoned up. And if Jesus were to destroy the law and the prophets, he would essentially be calling his father a liar who has said that my son is going to do all these things. Okay. Yeah. So the other question that must be answered in regard to this word fulfill is what happens as a result of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets? Again, it has to be the same for both. He cannot fulfill the law in one way with one result and then fulfill the prophets another way with a totally different result. That would be really senseless. When a prophecy is fulfilled, it is done. It's done. It cannot be fulfilled again. The prophecy remains, but it no longer anticipates anything, right? The the prophecy no longer does what it did formerly. Its prediction has come to pass. Well, that same result, in some sense, has to also be true in regard to the law. Once all legal requirements are met, the demands of the law are satisfied. The law as covenant is finished. The law as covenant. Jesus satisfied. He fulfilled the law, the demands of the covenant. When we read the, the entire law, what we have is we have the terms and the conditions of the covenant that God made with Israel. And so once those terms and conditions are satisfied, the covenant is not destroyed, but made obsolete. It's annulled, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Now, that's easy to harmonize uh, in, the Goth, in, the, I'm sorry, in the letters of the apostles. Just a sampling of that. Paul said that the law was given because of transgression until the seed should come. And the seed is Christ, Galatians 3.19. He says, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, there's no longer any need for the tutor. The law was the tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Well, if you've been justified by faith, there's no longer any need for the tutor, which is the law. Galatians 3, 24. Then Paul says, and this is the closest statement we can get to what Jesus said himself. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10, 4. So by fulfilling the law, Christ brings an end to the covenant, even though God's moral demands remain the same. Okay, now some people think, well, morality was established at the law. No, no, no. That's ridiculous. Okay. We can find the Ten Commandments being lived by prior to Exodus 20 and man being held accountable to them. Okay. 
Uh, morality has always existed because we were created in the image of God. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that the Gentile who does not have the law does by nature the things that are written in the law because the law has been written on his heart. Okay? He doesn't have the law in written form on, a t- on tablets, but he has it in his conscience and he's accountable to them. So morality existed before the law, it was during the law, and it has always existed beyond it. Okay? So morality remains, but it is for Christ, the sinless one, to interpret God's heart to us in regard to the true standard. Okay, so not destroying, but fulfilling, satisfying. Let's move on here. He says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now when Jesus says, for assuredly I say to you, he, he's, he's saying something that's unique to himself. Nobody else talks this way. And you'd think the apostles who were uh, the disciples of Jesus, they would have talked the same way he did. No, Jesus is the only one that says this. This most assuredly, uh, he says in John, it's like saying indeed, amen. He hasn't even said it, what he's going to say yet. But he says, indeed, amen. Amen is is an affirmation. Yes. In John's gospel, he says, uh, amen, amen, at least in the Greek. And in the English, it says, most assuredly. But in the Greek, it's amen, amen, yes, and yes. Jesus' way of adding emphasis. This is absolutely true, Jesus is saying, and you should listen carefully to what I'm about to say. And here it is. This is what he says, most assuredly, He says, until this current heaven and earth pass away, nothing, nothing will be removed from the law until all is fulfilled. Notice that he drops the word prophets there, and he just says law. Now, he's probably using the typical way to refer to the the entire Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. Jesus is saying that as long as the heavens and the earth remain, every minute detail of God's word will remain. Jesus says in the text here, not one jot or tittle will pass away or be removed. The the jot and the tittle uh, speak of the smallest markings made on the letter of the alphabet, uh, like the the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. Uh, No part of the law, he says, not even an iota in the Greek he uses, that smallest mark or the slightest stroke of a pen will be absent. God will preserve the word to the end of the world. Listen, When people come to you and say the scriptures have been corrupted or they've been translated too many times, this is what you say. Give me an example. Prove it. Now, I've been confronted with that question many, many times by a lot of skeptics. Guess how many times it's been proven? Zero. You guys, for just the New Testament alone, there are over 24,000 manuscripts of the Bible. 24,000 ancient manuscripts. Okay. When we bring all of the textual evidence together, we're not missing anything, okay? So people that say that are parroting something that someone else has said from someone else that is very ignorant about history. And uh, so don't be intimidated when people say that. Don't try to even provide an answer for it. Just say, prove it. Just give me one example where the text is corrupted, okay? Uh, Thursday night, we were talking about the promises of God. Here's a promise, guarantees that what you have in your hands is the Word of God. Guarantees. You can be confident that what you read on its pages, every bit of it, has been divinely preserved. Uh, the Bible is the Word of God, not in part, but the whole. It's a thing that's trending right now. Is the Bible contains the Word of God, or it contains truth. There, 
their dispute is actually with Jesus on this one. Okay? Uh, one of my favorite things in regard to the preservation of God's word is that Paul bases uh, one of his largest theological arguments on a word uh, that is written in the singular as opposed to the plural in, in Galatians 3.15. And he's quoting back to, to Genesis. He's saying just that letter that makes that a, would, would make it a plural would radically alter our theology today. And he's depending upon just that alone. So if you were to ask Paul what he believed about the scriptures, he would say that it's all preserved. And then by his use of the word, he would say that it, it possesses all authority for establishing doctrine that pertains to God and his will. The Bible speaks truly and absolutely about God himself, and it communicates all that he requires, all of his will. Paul also said that all scripture is theopanousto. It means all of it is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Jesus prayed for his disciples. He says, Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. As I said, the, the problem that people have is with Jesus, because Jesus is the one that said, Father, your word is truth itself. That cannot be translated uh, any different way. Okay? It is truth. So if you're to ask Jesus what he believed about the Bible... He wouldn't say it contained truth. He would say that it is truth. It's veritas. It's come from God. Yeah. And what I love from the gospel is that Jesus repeatedly, constantly goes to the word for truth. And when it comes to a dispute over doctrine or his, historical events, he goes to the word for final authority. If Jesus does that, we should be doing that. Let's move on. Jesus says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the passage in connection with verse 17 that causes most of the problems. The question arises, what does he mean by these commandments? These commandments. Does he mean the commandments that he's about to give in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Or is he referring to the commandments of the Old Testament? Or just the Ten Commandments, as some would say? Or does he mean the Old Testament commandments as they are interpreted and taught by him, in light of him fulfilling all the demands of the covenant itself. I don't know. That's why I think we have to harmonize the scriptures together uh, to wrestle with this properly. We must say that while the covenant has been annulled by Christ, that God's moral demands remain the same. So the commandments refer to a proper understanding of God's moral demands as they're interpreted by Jesus. You guys, we must have his interpretation. Or, man, we're just a mess. We need his input. In the context of Jesus' sermon here, he will address first the, the common interpretation of Old Testament commandments, and then he will provide the proper interpretation of them. Okay? Now, this is fascinating because by doing that, Jesus is telling the people that he alone has the authority to provide a definitive interpretation of the Word of God. And what he's implying by that is what made the Pharisees flip. He's saying, I'm a divine person, because only a divine person knows the mind of God. That's what the scriptures even tell us. They knew what he was saying, and so they 
got upset. We'll, we'll be visiting some of those passages. These commandments, the moral demands of God, the question I have is what's at stake? Why should this concern us? It's because Jesus says whoever breaks the least of one of his commandments and teaches others to break them will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, first, notice that Jesus doesn't say that those who break the least of the commandments will be excluded from the kingdom. He doesn't say they'll be kicked out. They'll just be called, they'll be considered the least. And then he says, and those who obey and teach the commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, understand, obeying and teaching is, is, is just the, the great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. It's just a different way of saying it. But I want to look at this thing about breaking the least of the commandments. He says they won't be excluded. They'll just be considered. They'll be called least in the kingdom. Now, that's interesting, and, and we should all be glad because how many of us have broken the least of the commandments? Some of you are like, I don't think I have. <laughs> don't make me go through the commandments to see if, if you have. Okay, We've all broken the commandments of God on more than one occasion. And what's comforting is Jesus says, you won't be excluded. So that's comforting. But who wants to be considered the least? No hands? No underachievers in here? Yeah. So it's true. Every true believer, everyone regenerate by the Holy Spirit will be included in heaven. None excluded. But not every believer will be considered great. In heaven, not everyone's reward will be the same. Now, I understand that the idea of gradation or ranking in heaven is not popular. It's not a fun discussion to think that I could, yes, get into heaven, but not something as well as somebody else in heaven. Okay? Many people don't even think that it's uh, something the scriptures actually teach. But there is ranks among its citizens. We can't avoid it. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 3, and you can get the idea from other apostles, but Jesus is the one that introduces it and talks about it the most. He talks about it here in Matthew 5. He'll talk about it again in Matthew 11, 11, and then in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, in verse 19, 28, and then the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Now, to be honest, I don't exactly know what the gradation will look like in heaven. Uh, I just know that it's based upon faithfulness and service to God. That's all I know. And uh, I know that being considered great in the kingdom is going to be better, and it'll be sweet, but I also know that being considered least in the kingdom is going to be pretty amazing too. But nowhere in the scriptures does God say, I want you to shoot for at least the least. <laughs> yeah, God doesn't reward us equally. I made the joke about, you know, this millennial generation where uh, I think, what do they say? The, the, the millennials is the product of giving everybody the same reward. So like in Little League Baseball, everybody gets the participation award, everybody gets this trophy, and, and there's no hierarchy, there's no, you know, uh, but this ain't Little League, okay, this is Pro Ball. And uh, if you're just a bench warmer, uh, there's a certain pay grade for that. But if you hit home runs and score points and catch balls, there's a pay grade for that. And uh, yeah, But this has to be clarified in terms of our justification before God. Uh, that's all the same. That's all the same because it's based on the righteousness of Christ, which has been granted to the believer. And if someone is declared righteous through faith, they're granted access into the kingdom. But it's after that that determines how you will experience the kingdom. 
And Jesus says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So now we, it is an issue of not making it in, okay? If someone's righteousness doesn't exceed, now understand by the word exceed, he doesn't mean just above. He means transcends. It just goes way beyond the Pharisees. If, if your righteousness does not, he says that person will be excluded from the kingdom. He must have a righteousness much more. Can you imagine how the Pharisees felt sitting there listening? The problem really, though, is what this translated into the, the Jewish mind of the first century, who was brought up thinking that the most spiritual, the most godly and righteous people were the Pharisees. And so this standard now that Jesus is setting for them seems to be utterly impossible. To them, if the Pharisees couldn't get into the kingdom, nobody could. They were, they were bench warmers. No, they weren't even bench warmers. They were water boys. They were worse. But who could get in? And the problem is, as Jesus goes through the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't lower the bar. Isaiah said that when the, when the Messiah comes, he's going to exalt the law and make it honorable. He's going to interpret it as God intended it. And it requires moral perfection. But we don't have what it takes to achieve that level of morality. It's so far beyond us. And so the only possible solution to our destitution is that Jesus supply us, the sinner, with this righteousness. His righteousness must first be imputed to us. That's the only righteousness that is going to transcend human righteousness. And it's only a thing that can happen by faith. It cannot be based on man's faithfulness. I mean, if you think about your life, whether it's in your younger years or currently, I mean, honestly, how many think that you can meet the standard by your own faithfulness? What an arrogant joke that would be. Just so foolish even to think that. It can't be based upon our legal achievements because we all fall so miserably short. Paul says, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's not, entrance into the kingdom does not happen by our works of righteousness. It's a thing of God's mercy. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Saved by God's favor. By the way, he did us a great favor by sending his son. And then it's out of the cross that his favor is distributed to the believer. It's not obtained by good works or righteous deeds. Salvation is the work of God. We must be supplied with righteousness. My favorite discussion on all of this, of course, is is Paul's in Romans chapter 3, 21 to chapter 4, verse 25. But I can't exposit that text to you this morning. But I love beginning in verse 5 of chapter 4 because he says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted or it is imputed to him for righteousness. And notice how the passage takes for granted that man is ungodly. There's not a, a godly sinner that's ever been saved. Not a single one. Okay? God demonstrated in his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, and he says then ungodly, we were the enemies of God. He came to save his enemies. So it takes for granted that, that men are ungodly. And if he's to be made acceptable in God's sight, righteousness must be foreign to him. It cannot be his own. It must be attributed to him through faith in Jesus. And when the sinner does that, David makes this amazing declaration about them. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is 
the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, that's really bad English for the rest of us. Let me translate that into English for you. Literally, oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord will not, no, not ever hold his sin against him. The Greek grammar is very specific there. The double negative in Greek uh, emphasizes. Listen again. Oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord will not, no, not ever hold his sin against him. That is the blessed man. So the question that you have to wrestle with this morning is, are you the blessed man or woman? Through faith have all of your sins been removed, and in the place of your sin, through faith is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Yeah. Are you the happy person? Because the moment that God imputes this righteousness to you, you are forgiven, you're declared righteous in his sight, and he grants you, he welcomes you in his kingdom. You're adopted and become a citizen. And then it's after all that that the saved sinner is called to live in obedience to God's word, but by God's grace. Because even though you, once you get saved, you don't become a super saint. You're just declared righteous in God's sight. You're still the same as you were before. But now you need grace so that you can walk in step with Christ. All justified sinners enter the kingdom. But the question is, how will you fare when you get there? Will you be considered least as an underachiever? Or will you be considered great because you were faithful and you served the Lord and other people? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Lord Jesus, I thank you that nobody understood our plight like you did. You came into the world to save sinners. And um, so, Lord, I pray that everyone that's here this morning, that they would understand the difference between what is, it is to believe unto righteousness and what it is to live a righteous life. That we are granted access to the kingdom because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But then you've called us to walk with you, Lord, to be faithful. So, Lord, I pray that you would grant us grace, that you'd, you'd fill us with your spirit, that we would walk accordingly in a way that pleases you, that glorifies you, and is a blessing to other people. Help us to take your word seriously, to not be complacent or to be underachievers, Lord, but to strive for greatness in the kingdom because you're worthy of it, Lord. So help us, we pray. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I pray that you'd love on them. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to grab every opportunity throughout the week to share the gospel, to love people, Lord, to represent you well. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.